0: This is the ID Fanatic podcast coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto in March 2022. The podcast that explores the leading edge of instructional design in the 21st century. My guest today is Jorim Radmaker of Belgium, a children's book author who decided to create an app to let his children write their own children's books, putting up their own pictures and text side by side, and ended up with an alternative to manuals that he sold to Microsoft and has since expanded all over the world. I hope you enjoy our discussion.
1: Mm, So my name is Jorim. I uh, live in Belgium and I'm I'm an entrepreneur, I guess. And I have been interested in education all my life since a kid, was very eager to learn and discovered also at some point that I'm eager to teach. Maybe I did a short stint as a teacher, uh, but I've been active mostly as a communications designer and having developed a platform for digital children's books that then pivoted to B2B training. I, uh, was able to learn much more about this world of instructional design within enterprises and companies and it's an uh, a new an acquired taste i guess it's not something that i've been doing before
0: how did yeah. you get into developing the uh, the app for children's books so just for for listeners this is an app that uh, you scroll through and you've got pictures on the left and text on the right and the pictures you can make yourself you can shoot the, them with your phone and and stick it up and um Go
1: on. Yeah. Well, you know, as a communications designer working in the industry for, I don't know, 15, 20 years almost, I realized that the PDF was broken. The old way of printing something on paper wasn't really fit for purpose anymore. And as I had kids myself, and I had a fledgling art career as an artist, um, and I saw three little artists in my own family grow up, I wanted to empower them to create their own storybooks, their own artwork, but also myself. I wanted to have a career as a internationally published children's book illustrator, but I knew I wouldn't be able to do that with paper, not from small little Belgium at least. So I set out to change the way that people create content, together and try and limit uh, the work it takes to get published on an international scale. And for that, I knew that the content had to be inherently multilingual, had to work on any device, had to be really simple to create and to share.
0: So this is a big idea. When Did this come in a dream or what happened?
1: <laughs> no, it didn't come in a dream. It was um, years in the making. I I've always had a passion for trying to think of what comes next.
0: Is your background computer uh, yeah. science at
1: all? Yeah. I have got, well, not a professional degree, but I have been involved in um, tinkering with computers and programming computers all my life as well. And uh, my number one passion probably is science. My, and I, I put computers and technology kind of under that umbrella. And the second passion, I guess, is art or design or making things. And, you know, arguably software design involves both sides. And um, I've been increasingly frustrated at the work I did and how time consuming and expensive it was to produce PDF content or even YouTube videos. And I realized that there needed to be a faster, better way.
0: So, from an instructional design perspective, this is all very interesting because what um, Shoram came up with is this scrolling app that works on a tablet or, or whatever, where as the text scrolls, so does the picture. And then the picture could be a picture. And then uh, you developed it into a, a training app for software or for whatever, so that the picture on the left doesn't have to be static. It could be animation or it could be, a gif or a video or uh, whatever is appropriate and you can do sort of step-by-step instruction
1: yeah and there's uh, the technology that's that's one side of it it's a very intuitive and user-friendly format and it facilitates learning um, through this combination of video and text but there's also the social dimension of um, having content created by your peers The regular workforce, it's not just about, uh, uh, learning some uh, couple of observations. Learning happens best when you need it is one observation. Mm -hmm. So if you can learn at the time when you actually can put it into practice, it can have a, that has a strong reinforcing effect. But also what we found is that there's a social dimension to it. And I, and I, and I saw this myself in my own childhood, if. I create the content or my peers create the content and it's real world based. Sometimes it's much easier to digest and much more appreciated than if it's created by some engineer or Mm -hmm. expert in high up in a tower somewhere that kind of isn't necessarily as much in touch with the reality on the workflow.
0: Mm.
1: And having that community of content creation, I think is key if you want to um, create engaging content that the workers appreciate and that your colleagues know to be true and grounded in reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting mm-hmm. that, uh, that maybe I haven't appreciated that aspect of it because mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at it just as a sort of replacement for PDFs um, in terms of a manual, but in your, in many of the videos you show or your show somebody on, you know a technician basically taking a picture or something and writing something and having it appear right away sure. which does add a new dimension of it i'm wondering i'm thinking of my own company and wondering how that kind of thing gets pushed out and implemented so that mm-hmm. i mean are people walking around with tablets or well the white people are walking around with phones that's for sure um yeah. but in in your experience how has that been rolled out to workforces so that it actually gets used properly.
1: It depends, of course, in the industry, in Mm -hmm. the food industry, for instance, people don't generally walk around with phones, sometimes with tablets, but then it's usually a shared tablet. In other industries, everybody just walks around with their mobile phone. Many companies these days, they, they hand their workers a mobile phone to use on the factory floor on the work floor or tablets that they share between them. And this is the in industrial settings where the company is used on a shop floor and work floor, often the employer distributes and, and provides access to digital devices such as smartphones or tablets.
0: So when you have a shop floor situation, how do all the technicians and such know that to use it and like the training yeah. effort must be something.
1: That... Well, the good thing about our technology is it's very easy to train and it mm-hmm. takes about 15 minutes of training by a colleague to get up and running. This is what we see in reality. It doesn't take, you know, expertise in e-learning authoring software or anything like that. You just point and click, point and click and you assemble the basics of it. Now, of course, behind that, there is still instructional design theory at work that can make that lifted to the next level. But at very at the very least, you can already assemble the bare bones or like a minimum viable training course, you might say, mm. uh, with your smartphone. And usually, what we see how this is being deployed is we talk to a plant manager or a production manager, and they might have an immediate pressing need because they're training a new uh, a new workforce, and their old employees, their experienced employees, are leaving the company. And they need to capture that knowledge before they go and then immediately train the new workers. So there's usually a very strong and burning issue that they look to resolve. And afterwards, as you have these QR codes based on the machines that train the new employees and onboard them, you see them using this for more and more purposes. Ultimately the accounting software gets documented with the tool or, you know, health and safety guidance or, you know, how do I ask for maternity leave or stuff like that?
0: So it becomes a kind of knowledge base alternative. It starts,
1: yeah, it starts to become like a knowledge base alternative.
0: So with my company, for example, we started, we started to build a wiki um, of all the different machines and specs yeah. and things so that people can access it. It's
1: uh, very much like that, yeah. My mm-hmm.
0: company is Film uh, Rental. So we have these, you know, these, the cranes on a movie set. They have the camera lighting up in the air. Yeah. Uh, so we have these cranes, and they wanted some training. And they saw, shot some video. They shot some do-it-yourself sort of, this is how you do that kind of videos. I was going to put them up as a rise course. And that didn't really suit because it, it wasn't, because uh, having it as rise courses on the, LMS and you have to mm-hmm. go through that sort of way. So it wasn't yeah. really accessible as much as, as, as easily as it could be.
1: Regular video, when you're looking at something on YouTube to find out, you know, if you want to learn a new skill or you don't find out how to do something, you often have to click pause and rewind. And you, you kind of have to scrub that timeline back and forth until you find what you really need. Mm-hmm. We solved that situation. We solved that problem. And also the video editing that's in done often prior to publishing a video. We've also removed that step by making mm. it super simple in our software to not even have to edit any video anymore. So, yeah, there's um, that's definitely something you might have done with, with our solution, with Manual 2.
0: How, how long have this been developed?
1: It's uh, now six years in the making. Yeah? So we're... Um, We're now worldwide in uh, over 90 countries, over 30,000 users. Um, But it all started as a children's book app. And uh, my children actually, they still use it for that. They still create their own stories with this tool, publishing it internally. They document their own recipes with this and um, share it with family.
0: So with some companies, they have this burning need for something right away. Uh, They use it and then, it might become sort of integrated into their system because as you said, you have QR codes on the equipment, which then lead you to the video that you can scan. So like for what percentage of companies does it get expanded into a a knowledge base versus, all right, we took care of that thing. And that's sort of where it stops.
1: Well, I guess ultimately the majority of our customers probably using it as a knowledge base in some shape or form often what's challenging is they have some costs and they have um, a legacy pool and a resource of like like a resource of documentation that often nobody really uses but they still have it and they want to somehow keep it for you know audit purposes or just for having it um but um Usually you start somewhere and then you just expand department by department, factory by factory until it's worldwide. We have got several customers who are using this in in multiple continents to standardize and uh, their ways of working, but also to learn from each other. And that's another important aspect, that community aspect, learning from each other, different plans in different countries, exchanging tips and tricks on how you best do something.
0: Have you got like a support discussion board that? People participate in that
1: way. They are doing that on top of our platform. Right? So they have these meetings. We call them, well, they call them communities of practice uh-huh. where they assemble teams from um, different plans, for instance, and then they come and share and exchange tips and tricks. And actually, we do that ourselves with our customers. So our customers regularly come together exchange tips and tricks on how to make the most out of the software how to create the most engaging content how to get empowerment on the workflow how to get those kpis what other use cases are there for this that you had not considered before because we have a very widely applicable product that works for multiple industries but also within a department or within a company multiple use cases mm-hmm. we've got hospitals we've got governments we've got manufacturing We've got food, we've got automotive, all kinds of uh, brands are on there. And also two main use cases. One is for internal use and one is for product manuals. If you, if you buy a new product that old paper book, that's a, a, that, that you and I remember from way back is going to be a thing of the past in the future, of course. There's just going to be a QR code on the product that leads to all of the instructions um, very easily and that's what we also supply to to our customers. Like Microsoft's using that. If you enter the Microsoft headquarters in Europe, you get a badge. On the flip side of the badge is a QR code that leads to the visitor guidance using our technology. Wow. Yeah, Microsoft was one of the, one of our first customers, and and now a partner of ours. They're actually, you know, reselling our solution uh, onto their uh, customers.
0: Oh, that's great. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, but I really still want to get back to the children's books as well one day. It's one thing to get it started and launched as a minimum viable platform. But what I really want to build is a platform that um, has the fundamentals right in terms of fair sharing of content remuneration and content revenues that you that you will be creating on the platform. And for that, there's a bit of technology that we still need to build. And we're actually, you know, raising the money through this first company to allow us to develop this bigger platform, which is um, gonna change the way the world collaborates on any kind of content. Um, if you think of Spotify, for instance, Right now, you can access a song by Spotify, but it's one track, one band that your revenue somehow goes to. And we think it needs to be fairly distributed between all the band, band members, for instance.
0: When you were talking about a, um, the collaboration platform, it, it reminded me of something called Hit Record. Actually, yeah, it's, I know about it's called it. Hit, Re- Hit Record. hit record hit record uh, record, i'm sure if supposed to pronounce it but absolutely
1: yeah that's one of those initiatives that i like
0: for people listening it's joseph gordon levitt the actor yeah started a website it's hitrecord.org and uh maybe you can maybe you know it better than i do you can describe what it is
1: well i haven't used it myself i haven't contributed to it myself um it is collaborative art yeah for instance you can i don't know create an episode of a new tv series together And you join forces online on on that platform. And then afterwards, the revenue gets kind of distributed between the people. But the contracting involved and the, the ownership of the content, there's still a bit of work that needs to be done on having that technology be really scalable.
0: So is that being done anywhere? What platforms are out there that have started doing that?
1: Well... There's um, a, a lot of initiatives in, that are using blockchain to document authorship and collaboration. For instance, um, Mycelium Cloud is a blockchain-based initiative or Blocker, B-L-O-K-U-R. Uh, there's a, a bunch like them that are trying to change the way authorship uh, copyrights are managed online. Mm-hmm. And all of them still have things missing. and. I mean, this is one problem that has no easy fix. And Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. That's what they say, and it's true. I had this vision of what it is that I want to accomplish. But every single step along the way needs to be a viable business. My mind, is maybe, my mind maybe has its uh, the, the hands and fingers and lots of pies, but my business is quite focused right now on just the one thing, the employee training and the the, the the and the product manuals, and from that, we'll just expand sideways and and um, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming still.
0: I hadn't thought though that much about the what you were talking about with the social, the like with peer, peer peer created content aspect of it, because mm-hmm. with the wiki, that's sort of. Coming online, for example, somebody just wanted a big page on uh, these batteries, these portable batteries that we have, so mm-hmm. batteries are starting to replace generators in some cases or work beside generators in some cases. and uh, so I told them, okay, write you know you know all the, where all the resources are. So write something up that you know, because we already had a couple of model pages, right? of of some other product. So I said, so you see how the screen is organized. There's the, you know, the the videos are linked here and whatever, and you know the audience and what you want them to see on the page. So mock something up and send it to me. So he did that and I put it up and it was, you know, kind of, so I'm distributing the content creation, but. (laughs) Centralizing you're still, still, the result, yeah.
1: Voila. and it's also centralizing to you, like it's you're a little bit of a bottleneck, perhaps. Yeah. If you want to create that content at scale and share that scale, and that's one of the problems we resolve is we allow the individual content creators to actually create the instruction or the manual itself, and gen, it just needs to be validated at the time of your convenience, but it can already be live in like a, in a minimum viable format, for yeah. and. One of the things that I saw with instructional designers, they're usually academics, they're highly trained, and they've got this expertise on how to use these kind of e-learning authoring tools or even a wiki tool, which is probably simpler. And sometimes people want to hold on to that power that that knowledge gives them, that expertise gives them. But the challenge is, if you really want to drive a lot of peer created content at scale, you'll need to abandon that bottleneck and empower everybody to contribute to the space, this knowledge base yeah, and that's what we're um, doing step by step. I mean we're not we're not nearly where I want to be, but we're already uh,
0: Changing Do you find that the company this. size enters into it?
1: Company size definitely matters, yeah. Um, in larger country companies, it's slower to get the initial approval on using something new. But um, smaller companies are, tend to be more cost conscious and they want to um, make very sure that, the investments that they make into our software, which is sometimes proportionally higher for them, because you know we have to onboard and train them. Uh, regardless of the company size, we have to train and, and 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 get a number of people up and running. And for many of the smaller companies, getting that whole project launched may not be as efficient. That being said, we have customers who have maybe company size of say 10 people who are using it, but it's very rare. Ultimately, we do think that a company of any size, even, you know, local bakery or you know, some, something like that, any companies, any size will be able to use our platform and to be able to afford it at a lower cost than what we're currently selling it for.
0: Hi, this is Mitch Moldowski. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Joram Rademacher of ManualTO for joining us with such an interesting and forward-thinking application. I hope you'll join our LinkedIn page. It's the ID Fanatic Podcast. And I hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye, bye, bye.